it comes down to your time value. So it's, it's how hands-on are you willing to be? And let's say I could do a single family home type of scenario and I could get a 15% annualized return. And that's going to take some of my time to put that together and find it and close it and the money and, and saving my receipts and working with CPAs and marketing the thing. Whereas maybe I could get a 10% return completely passively doing absolutely nothing. So that 5% differential maybe really like you paying yourself back for your time spent on the project. And I just got to that point where I was so burned out on the active side, I couldn't even see myself doing another deal. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Travis Watts. Travis is a real estate investor and syndicator with Ashcroft Capital. In this episode, Travis will tell us the benefits of being a passive investor and what we need to do to vet sponsors. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, Check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Travis, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. So Travis Watts, Director of Investor Relations at Ashcroft Capital. Basically, my backstory is I started with a, a lot of active real estate starting in 2009. So I did house hacking. I did, if your listeners are familiar with like the Burr strategy, I did fix and flips. And then later I got into some vacation rentals. And kind of the funny part about that whole story is I set out solely to achieve passive income and to be a passive investor and ended up basically just creating a job for myself that became way too active, way too much hands-on management. So in 2015, I kind of went back to the drawing board and I decided that passive was really the approach I wanted to take. And I learned about apartment syndications, being able to invest in larger deals, multifamily mostly. So I kind of sold off all of my single family homes over the next couple of years. And I incrementally started putting those into apartment syndications. So fast forward through today, and between my wife and I, we've done about 27 passive limited partner syndication investments. So I consider myself to be a, a full-time passive investor, as ironic as that may be. Yeah, and so now you can spend your time traveling, going to different conferences, just shaking hands, but not having to worry about actually actively running the business. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody's different. And, and some are kind of a mix of both. You know, I've met a lot of people that do say fix and flips full time, but they realize that they only have so much time in a day and so much capacity. And so as you're working on several of those, you may leverage your portfolio or your passive income by just taking some of that capital off the table to go into a syndication. Very few, but some are full-time like I am. So limited partnerships just over and over and everything in between. 
it's great that you started 2009 because that was when you know basically everyone's feeling the, the full brunt of the recession how did you have the guts to actually buy properties during that time yeah i guess you know i didn't know what i didn't know but there was one thing i knew for sure and that was these homes that i was picking up it was how much they were selling for just a few years ago just a couple of years ago in fact and it was really just that simple. It was just looking at, you know, websites, I forget which ones I use, but say Zillow or something and saying, wow, this thing, you know, it just sold for you know 200,000 and now they're wanting 100,000. It seemed like a good deal to me. I was actually in the market to buy a home just for myself, which I ended up doing. And at the time in 2009, the government was actually giving out the $8,000 tax credit to first time home buyers. And I qualified for that. So I ended up kind of using that initiative on top of the depleted values. And so that's kind of where the house hacking stuff started and kind of built it up from there. Simultaneously, I guess it's important to point out that through that time period of 09 through 15, I was working uh, oil industry jobs. So uh, long hours, usually about 100 hour work weeks. Uh, often away from home. And it ended up being, I was working overseas doing that. So, and as part of that overall strategy, if your listeners are familiar with the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early, I was kind of following that model without knowing that was actually a movement or a thing. It was just kind of ingrained in me from childhood that, you know, you kind of live below your means and don't spend a lot of your money, you know, blah, blah, blah. So as much as I was making with that income, I was hardly spending anything. And then I was rolling over all my real estate profits. So I wouldn't have started as a passive investor, suffice it to say, but as I got enough capital to invest, it, it started to make a lot of sense to look at passive opportunities. So back in 2009, when you were first starting out, what was your number? Like I can achieve this much money in monthly cash flow to quit my job and live financially free forever. Yeah, that's funny. I wish I had been more organized. I wish I had started with like a whole bunch of soul searching and writing all this stuff down and then going out with a plan and just executing. But instead, what I really did is I just kind of butchered my way through everything I could figure out and get my hands on without having a mentor, without having you know a network or a team or any one thing that I really subscribed to. I'd read a couple of real estate books. My dad and my stepmom had been in the single family realm. They were probably the only ones in my family doing any type of real estate investing. So, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. Started with single family, started kind of doing what they were doing. And then I felt like I was just, you know, learning new things on the fly and trying them out. But a lot of people will throw a number out like, you know, I want $10,000 a month passive income. And, and that, that can be a great goal. But I think what's more important is why is that your goal? And if you have 10,000 a month passive income, what are you going to do with it? You know, what, why is that important? Why not 12? Why not eight? And so I think as that kind of evolved, it was really at the point where I exceeded my living expenses with passive income that kind of gave the financial independence. So, you know, so to speak, and I really didn't enjoy that oil field job. <laughs> And so as I, as I saw that threshold happen and it's like, wait a second, I don't really need to be working this job. I do have the choice to be doing this. That's the point where I, I pulled the plug on the whole thing. And when was that? When did you officially cut ties? That was still around late 2015, early 2016, somewhere in that realm as I was kind of shifting the portfolio over to the syndication stuff. So I was a little hesitant to pull the trigger just because I was in that big transition. But ultimately, you know, happiness. And that got the best of me. So 
The first thing I did was kind of funny. I, you know, having that freedom and that flexibility to kind of, you know, what do I want to do now with my time? I refer to that as like time freedom, the ability to do what you want, when you want with your time. I went to go work for a brokerage firm. So I wanted to go learn stocks, bonds, mutual funds. I got licensed with a Series 7 and 63. And I thought if I could master stocks, bonds, mutual funds and real estate, I'd be some kind of guru or something. I don't know really what I was thinking, but I didn't last very long in that industry. I much prefer real estate as an asset class. And I believe you can be completely diversified within the asset class itself. And so that kind of led me, you know, down some trial and error paths of, of pursuing my true interests and led me straight back to what I was doing firsthand, which is syndication investing. So uh, I'd been investing with Ashcroft Capital, Joe Fairless's firm, for a number of years and basically had reached out to Joe early on to say, look, man, you know, I try to add value in any way I can. I'd love to be part of your team. I love working with you, love your deals, your communication, all the things that you guys do. And unfortunately, we don't have anything at this time, but, you know, I'll keep you in mind, you know, kind of that, you know, what you never want to hear when you're trying to bank on a new venture. But later came up with a position and, you know, joined the team from there. So it's been amazing. And so now I get to help people kind of learn more about what it is I do, what impact that's had. And I attend a lot of seminars, live events, stuff like that. So it's been an amazing journey so far. That's great. So how long have you been with Ashraf Capital? So it hasn't been very long. I mean, maybe, what, five months or something like that. And it's just a nice thing for me because it kind of gives that work-life balance. I was going to a bunch of events anyway, seminars and whatnot, just for self-development and education. And so now, you know, if your listeners are traveling around to different events, you might run into me there, maybe behind the Ashcroft Capital booth. I'm actually doing one this weekend out in LA. So yeah, I love to travel. That's one of my passions and I love self-development. And this is kind of how I give back is, is helping people understand this model and what it might be able to do for them. That's awesome. And I'm, like I mentioned before, I'm in a very similar role as you where I'm posting these podcast videos and meetup groups, but also helping out people with their finances through hard money lending. So you're doing basically the same thing by going to these conferences, talking about investing in syndications, but also helping them with you know, Ashford Capital and their services. Absolutely. And there's so many models. I mean, you can make money in and that can be beneficial to people. It's hard to master them all. I've certainly taken part in, in different elements with that as well, with note lending and whatnot. That's part of my strategy as well. Nice. And let's talk about your transition from single families to multifamily and you know the passive side to it. How big was your portfolio back in 2015 when you started to make that transition to the passive side? Yeah, I think what kind of accelerated my portfolio to being a little more too active a little too quickly was the fact that I got into the vacation rental space. I think that was really kind of the, the last pin to be pulled. And then the whole thing was blowing up on. So I would say somewhere around like seven single family, somewhere in that realm. You know, my dad, as an example, fully retired, has seven or eight single family homes. And we talk about this all the time, but he's like, you know, I fully recognize I can't keep scaling this thing up and have 16 or 17 or 20 homes because he doesn't want a full-time job in retirement. Even with a property manager, that's going to be pretty tough to pull off. So I kind of hit that same barrier, you know, at around seven homes where I'm like, man, I the intention, I guess, in my head back then was to scale up to 50 homes or 100 homes. But in all reality, I mean, I was maxed out, especially with full-time W-2 job simultaneously. So that's kind of what led me to the syndications is, you know, it didn't matter if I had one syndication deal under my belt or a thousand, 
It's hands-off and it's completely passive. It's completely scalable. And that's why I fell in love with that model. So right now you say you're in about 27 syndications, which requires a lot of money up front. Did you get most of that money from selling those properties that you owned in the past? Yeah. So numerous ways. The very first like seed capital, if you will, came from a combination of me working from age 15 all the way up through age 20 and saving as much as I could. In addition to that, my parents had set aside a little bit of capital to go to college and I ended up getting a scholarship and not using that. And so I kind of combined my savings with their savings. And that's what allowed me to do just my first house. And I just went with a conventional 20% down type of thing on a $100,000 home. So we're talking about like $20,000. And that's literally, that was it. That's all I had. And then I got that tax credit money back. I house hacked and ended up with like an infinite return within a couple of years. And then the oil field job took over. And for those that may not know, a lot of oil field jobs are six-figure incomes. That was the case with mine. And I was living, you know, fire movement style. I, mean, <laughs> I was, my living expenses were like, you know, 25000 a year or something, you know. And so I was pocketing the difference and investing all of that into real estate and just turning it over and turning it over and turning it over until I had enough of a lump sum to invest passively with where those numbers made sense, you know. And I talk about this to a lot of different people you know, it may not make sense to be passive if let's say you have, you know, $25,000 to your name and that's all the working capital you have to invest may not be the right model for you. You know, if you're just going to have $100 a month passive income or some number like that, you know, it may not be motivational enough. So <laughs> it might be worth pursuing, you know, whatever it takes to get your capital up to, you know, 100,000, 200,000, whatever it may be to where you've got, you know, a thousand a month or 2000 a month passive income. And did it feel weird giving up that control? Like I know a lot of people here in the Bay Area, they don't like the passive investment model because they feel like they're just giving away their money to someone to do whatever we're going to do with it. And they don't actually get to learn anything in the process. Like they don't have full ownership and control over the investment. Was that strange for you? Thankfully, I guess, not for me. That would be a huge struggle at this point to be given all that capital away. The way I kind of see it is it comes down to your time value, I guess. So it's, it's how hands-on are you willing to be? And let's say I could do a single family home type of scenario and I could get a, I don't know, a 15% annualized return. And that's going to take some of my time to put that together and find it and close it and the money and, and saving my receipts and working with CPAs and, you know, marketing the thing. Whereas maybe I could get a 10% return completely passively doing absolutely nothing. So that 5% differential may be really like you paying yourself back for your time spent on the project. And I just got to that point where I was so burned out on the active side. I just, I couldn't even see myself doing another deal. It, it just, it didn't seem like a possibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes sense because I have the same view when it comes to property management companies, because you pay them about 10% to manage your properties on the gross rents. And some people say, well, that's too much money. But for me, I'm like, well, that 10% is there. And I can pay myself to do that job or I can pay someone else to do that job. And I'm very happy paying someone else to do that job for me. Yeah, that, that's 100% how you have to look at it. You know, could you self-manage? Yes. But again, what is your time value worth? How much time in the year are you really putting into that? That's exactly right. Yep. So when you decided, okay, I'm going to start investing passively in multifamily syndications, how did you choose a syndication group to go with? 
Good question. The wrong way. I was looking to partner with local folks doing their first and second deals and kind of, you know, I was vetting out pro formas much more than I was vetting out the teams. And those were some of the first major mistakes that I made, in my opinion. So any more in my advice, I guess, to people looking to get into the space, find a credible team. You know, they've got a track record, at least enough to say we've done this before, hopefully more than once. So I bet a team number one, I bet a market number two, and then I bet the deal number three. That's kind of my process. And the way I started was completely reverse of that. I looked at a pro forma and then usually the market and the team last. But at the end of the day, you know, back to your point of relinquishing control, what you're really doing in a syndication is you're banking on the team to be able to execute what they say they're going to do in the time frame that they anticipate accomplishing that. And you're saying, here's $50,000. I hope you can pull that off. <laughs> and so you really want to spend enough time and ask enough hard questions up front to feel comfortable parking your capital in an illiquid investment for you know three years, five years, seven years. It just depends on the deal. So how did you end up getting into one of Ashcroft Capital's deals? Yeah. So Ashcroft was probably, they, they were pretty early on. They may have been like the fourth deal that I did somewhere in that range and met with Joe. And what was kind of funny, it was just right place and right time. I had sat down with my wife at the time, my girlfriend, and we had mapped out kind of this, I think it was loosely based off like a Tony Robbins exercise <laughs> for your listeners that know Tony Robbins. We had said like, you know, where do we want to be in five years? Where do we want to be in 10 years? What's our lifetime goals? You know, what's this stuff going to cost? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and so we had got all this stuff and then decided to be passive with investing. And then to that point, it was like, what markets do we want to be in? What type of asset class do we want to be in? You know, what kind of, you know, we want monthly distributions. We want all these different things. And upon speaking with Joe Fairless, it was like, Ashcroft was doing everything on our list. Like literally it checked every single box that we had set down previously to go over. And that was just, like I said, right place, right time, meant to be. It was a sign. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you want to say about it. And so, yeah, I, I'm in nine of their deals currently. My wife invests separately, actually. And so she's in several on her own. And then we're in a couple mutually. So, yeah, they just like I said, right markets, right asset type, what we were looking for, great communication, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what built that foundation for me to go reach out to them later and be part of their team. What does a good deal look like to you? Okay, cool. Yeah, I definitely want to be with a team with a track record that's great at communication that I resonate with, where our, our core philosophy is aligned. A lot of people, for example, maybe you want, you know, higher risk, higher return type stuff. You want, you know, new development, new construction, whatever. Plenty of groups out there that do that. But if that's your core philosophy and what you're looking for, you know, then, for example, Ashcroft wouldn't be the right group for you, you know, because all they do is value add multifamily on pre-existing older units. So for me, it is in a market that is diversified and growing. So we do a lot of deals in like Dallas, Fort Worth. We've done some Jacksonville, Florida, Tampa, Florida, Orlando, Florida, things like that. If you track just from a macro scale, like migration trends, where people are moving and why, and you know companies relocating headquarters, uh, those are some great markets to be in. Certainly way more than, than those markets that are great out there, but lately that's kind of where we've been focused. Typically do like a 200 to 600 unit property. Reason being, I mean, when you get too small, little things become big issues. You know, if you have, you know, 10 people move out on a 50 unit, that's a big deal. 
and you might actually be underwater on that deal at that point or you know something major happens like roof repairs and you know that can set you back in cash flow quite a bit what else do we look for so yeah team track record great expanded market supply and demand and monthly distributions just because it's my income. A lot of groups are doing quarterly and nothing wrong with quarterly, but for me, I just prefer the frequency of monthly reporting, monthly distributions, things like that. I'm a big proponent right now of like recession resistant assets. So I'm always thinking about the next correction, the next downturn. And uh, the good thing about buying properties built in the 80s and 90s is that you can see how they performed in most cases, if they kept the financials, the sellers in the last downturn. So we can see that occupancy went from 95% to 88%, but then fully knowing that our break even might be 65%. So it's kind of, to me, that's somewhat you know conservative. And at the end of the day, I'm cash flow focused much more than I am potential equity or you know where the market's going to be five years down the road or that kind of stuff. So just a big believer in fixing things up and you know making them work again, whether we're talking about cars or whether we're talking about real estate. That's just a model that I've always done and that I believe in. Nice. And in terms of uh, your distributions to your investors, are you guys doing like an 8% preferred return and like 70-30 split? What does your guys' uh, distribution look like? Yeah, exactly. So, and that's a good point to bring up. Early on, I invested with a couple groups with no preferred return, which again, preference, but you know, distributions that stopped on those deals. <laughs> Didn't appreciate that. So all the Ashcroft deals will have a preferred return. It's going to be deal specific as to what that is. But for listeners that may not know a preferred return, all the investors that are limited partners like myself are getting paid that percentage out of the cash flow and income on the property before Ashcroft's taking their asset management fees and their splits and their things like that. So it kind of puts the best interest of the limited partners first. And yes, on the back end, that would be like a common scenario, like a 70-30 split on the equity, things like that uh, upon a sale or refinance. Yep. So you guys like to keep it simple, right? You guys don't do like a crazy waterfall curve with different milestones. Yeah, no, it's a pretty cookie cutter model for most things, including the rehabs and the business plan and kind of what they do. A lot of efficiencies built into Dallas-Fort Worth, you know, same property managers, same construction crews, same kitchen remodels all that kind of stuff. So it you know it brings the costs way down and it makes it easy and predictable too for the investors. So yeah, there's always going to be like an acquisition fee up front. I mean, that's for finding the deal and underwriting it, putting it together, getting all the legal costs covered. I mean, you got to kind of reimburse yourself for that. There's certainly deals that you back out of or decide not to do as a syndicate. So that's just a, a personal loss, you know, that, that you have to take there. So there's going to be that fee an asset management fee after the preps have been paid out and then some kind of split on the back end. So yeah, pretty standard model. It's all addressed in the, the operating agreement and the PPM and subscription agreement, stuff like that. And how does the process work in terms of wanting to invest? Like let's say I have $50,000. I want to invest in one of your guys' deals. Can I just go online and invest online like that or do I have to talk to somebody first? Gotcha. Yeah, good question. So Ashcroft does 506B offerings, B as in boys. So there's no like general solicitation. And as part of those guidelines, there needs to be a substantive relationship in place. So yeah, it's often just having a phone call. You could talk to me, you could talk to Joe Fairless, talk to Frank. I mean, there's different people in the company, you know, you could have a conversation with just to make sure this type of investment would be appropriate, that it's, you know, it's not the, the situation where you only have 50000 to your name, that's your life savings, and you're 90 years old and you're wanting to take part. It's probably not going to be a good idea to do that. 
And, you know, accredited investors, we have to work with all accredited investors. So that's million dollar net worth, excluding primary residents, 200,000 income as an individual for the last couple of years. And this year, expectations to be the same this year. And 300,000 for a married couple in the last two years, expectations to meet that in the current year. So yeah, high net worth individuals needs to be part of that as well. So phone call is usually the typical path to invest. Let's say you have an offering and like you guys opened it up in January 1st and they call you and it's January 10th. Are they allowed to still invest in that same fund or do you have to wait for the next one because that one's open before they even talk to you? Gotcha. Yeah. So Ashcroft does everything on a first come first serve basis, right? I'm not seeing any deals ahead of time from anybody else out there. Typically just get an email with kind of the bullet pointed overview and a downloadable pro forma, which will be about 40 to 60 pages of what the business plan is and why you know we're doing the deal. Then there'll be a Q&A call a few days after that you know, to help answer all the investors' questions. At any point in this whole process, it's first come, first serve. So you do what's called a soft commit. So you could say, you know, I'm interested potentially in doing 50000 on this deal. And then, of course, that's going to be subject to receiving the actual docs that you get to look through and then finally decide, yes, this is still something I want to move forward with or no, I changed my mind. I don't want to do the deal. And either situation is fine, but that's kind of the process of, of how that works. And I was talking more in terms of SEC regulations. Okay, so a deal opens January 1st. Someone calls in January 10th. Do you have any open deals? First comes just kind of that Q&A conversation. Are you an accredited investor? You know, what's your experience in this type of stuff, if any? You know, your age, where do you live? Liquidity, risk tolerance, right? Are you familiar with this kind of stuff? You know, after describing all of that, let's say everything checks out, all the boxes are checked and the deal's still open. Yes, somebody can take part in that deal on uh, January 10th, if they choose to do so. If any of those uh, don't check out, then no, unfortunately, we can't, you know, have them in on the deal. Got it. So I guess the limitation is just that you can't be generally soliciting like on Facebook, right? Meetup groups talking about a deal if you haven't had a prior relationship. Right. And there are offerings and, and groups out there that can do that. So if you ever see one generally solicited somewhere, not by Ashcroft, but another group, that is legal potentially. If they're doing a 506C, C is in Charlie, that you can only take accredited investors on those and it has to be third party verified usually. So, you know, there's verifyinvestor.com or by an attorney or CPA. There's different ways of doing that where, you know, the investor is going to have to pull all their documentation and bank statements and whatever, and then prove that they're accredited to get a document that says they are, and then they can take part in the deal. With Ashcroft, it's, it's not that process. And so there has to be that pre-existing relationship and kind of that risk tolerance Q&A conversation that's had. And you're exactly right. We can't just go post a deal on Facebook and say, take part, click here. Got it. Are you familiar with some other groups like, I don't know, like Realty Shares or even Grand Cardone's Cardone Capital? Yeah, I mean, to an extent. So do you know how they're able to just take in like random people and only put in like a minimum of $5,000 per share? From what I understand, it, they're using called Regulation A. And so they can take on, I think it's unlimited number of non-accredited investors. And, you know, anybody can make the minimum whatever they want. So, you know, Ashcroft potentially could do, you know, 5,000 minimum if they wanted to. It's just a lot more heavy management, you know, on the side of, of investor relations. 
So they're operating under that. So that regulation takes a long time to get approval on. It's somewhat, from what I understand, it's pretty expensive to put, you know, the docs together for that and all that kind of stuff. And that's a fund structure, if I'm not mistaken, through Cardone Capital. So, and they have a whole different business model. They're buying a lot more like A-class stuff up and down Florida, Texas, you know, the South and parts of the East. But yeah, obviously I can't speak for their group. I haven't invested in any of those, but I've talked to a couple of people that took part in in offerings like that or through, like you said, a, a crowd street or something, you know, the, the crowdfunding platforms. There's still some regulations in there. It's, I don't know all the ins and outs. It's like, you can only invest a percentage of your annual income and it can't exceed this and it can't be that. So definitely seek some advice out there, you know, sec.gov to figure out kind of the ins and outs. But, but yeah, there's more and more people are pushing for for private market investments, you know, to become accessible to all. And I think we're in that big transition change right now. In fact, the SEC is right now trying to potentially, they're proposing to change the definition of an accredited investor and what that means. And it may be loosened a bit to folks in the industry that maybe hold a Series 7, a 63 or something like that could be deemed accredited just based off that license. But that hasn't passed. So we'll see what happens. Don't know. And you guys are crossing your fingers, right? Because if that changes, then it's good for you guys. It is good. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, wholeheartedly, you always want the investor to understand everything about the deal, the ins and outs and the risk and what and the what ifs and, and all that, the good, the bad, the ugly. But yes, that would open the door to quite a few people that are fully capable and understanding of what this stuff is, but unfortunately can't qualify under the current definition as of right now. And that is a shame. Mm-hmm. And how many investors do you usually have per project? It's a good question. I mean, it really, it, that can range big time because, you know, Ashcroft operates usually in that 200 to 600 unit range. So a 600 unit is going to be a much higher capital raise, many more investors involved with that deal than say a 200 unit, uh, which is like one of the past ones that they did here recently. So I don't know, just to throw a number out there, there might be like 60 investors involved on a deal on average. That's crazy. And how are they able to get 60 people to invest in their deals like that? Yeah, well, the database has been, you know, kicking along for some time now. They've been in business a while. They've got their proven track record now. In fact, they're pushing just under the billion dollars assets under management this year. So quite a few people in the database and a lot of the deals fill up just on returning investors, or I should say mostly fill up there just on returning investors. Awesome. And you said your role is to go to conferences and speak on behalf of the Ashcroft Capital Group. What are you doing at these conferences? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you've been to a real estate conference before, any of your listeners, uh, you'll usually see a, a bunch of booths set up as you know sponsors or vendors or exhibitors. And so I'm going around you know, to various conferences nationwide on behalf of Ashcroft to help answer questions that people have at these live events. I mean, there's certainly different ways to get involved and find out about this stuff through Joe's podcast or through the books he's done and whatnot. But a big portion of that is the live events. And, you know, Joe had a daughter maybe a year ago, year and a couple of months ago. So I'm kind of traveling and kind of backfilling that position for the time being. And so, yeah, being a panelist, being a speaker and being behind the booth to kind of be the Q&A guy on the live scene. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, What are some of the most common questions that you're getting from the audience? I think a lot of people talk about recessions. 
I mean, in general, this isn't even specific to syndications. It's just any type of investing. When you hear people talk about, should I get into the stock market right now? Or should I go you know, fix and flip a house right now or whatever? A common theme that's coming up is recession. So it's important to ask the groups that you're working with, you know, what their plan is or what they're doing to help mitigate that. Because I think a lot of us agree that it's not a matter of if, it's just kind of a matter of when. And so to be prepared for that, it's very important. It's funny because I started real estate investing in 2016. And since 2016, people have always said, hey, recession's coming. We're at the longest uh, you know, up market in the history of the world. And it's bound to happen sometime soon. But we haven't hit it yet. There's going to be people out there advocating there's a recession around the corner forever. It's important not to get caught up and solely listening to those people. I made that mistake is why I point that out. And I mean, there's been people out there ever since 2010 saying we're about to go into recession, you know, (laughs) we just bottomed out and barely had one tick up. And now it's, you know, doomsday just around the corner. So yeah, but you know, historically speaking, you know, I don't know, what is it every 10 years or something, you know, there's some kind of down cycle of some kind. So I guess we're technically due for that to happen. So we'll see. I mean, so what is your recommendation for all of these real estate investors, should they just hold on to their money in liquid cash or just, I guess, invest carefully? Yeah, invest carefully for sure. This is why the team's so important. You know, are they going to be able to execute the business plan? Is it a really heavy type of lift where they're trying to gut all the units and kick all the tenants out and start over with a project? That obviously is going to be a lot more risky. New development could hold more risk compared to something stabilized and cash flowing, you know, for 30 years straight, you know, workforce housing type stuff. So yeah, track record, competent team, looking for the right debt structures. What I mean by that is, so if a group's going to go into a project with a three to five year hold, that's the complete business model. And then they're going to look to sell. Look that they're putting long-term conservative debt on that. What I mean by long-term is like, say, a 10-year debt structure. So that let's say in year three, we start to slide into recession, they're not going to be forced to sell at a loss or refinance when there's lack of liquidity, they're going to have some wiggle room there on their debt structure. So that's highly important. And making sure that they're underwriting in uh, what's called their CapEx or capital expenditures for kind of the, the what ifs, you know, you always want to have, you know, a pool of money there where you don't have to pull from cash flow from the property to cover expenses, you already had that set aside and planned for because things do happen. And it's nice to work with groups that can cover that and out and not mess up your distribution frequency. So as an example, let's say the property is worth $10 million. Would you guys raise like 25% of that for the down payment and then maybe another five or 10% for capital expenses? Exactly. You got it just like that. Yep. Okay. So you typically do 75% LTV for a loan? Yeah, again, it's it's, uh, dependent on the deal, you know, could be as low as, you know, 70, maybe push up as high as 80. I don't even know if I've seen that, but it depends on the group that we're talking about. But yeah, somewhere in that range, 75 is a good number to use. Cool. And so you know how like Joe Fairless's podcast is very popular. I listen to it as well. Michael Blanc is very popular. And there's this whole, I guess, philosophy of how multifamily is great. I mean, you got out of single family, you got into multifamily. And I've seen a lot of people actually go into multifamily and want to become syndicators themselves. There has seems to be a resurgence of new syndicators, like fresh blood in like, you know, best ever conference, other multifamily conferences. Does that worry you at all to see so many new syndicators out and about? It worries me to the extent that a lot of people I think are going to make the same mistakes that I made. 
when I got in, you know, just saying, hey, I like this guy or this gal and it's their first deal and I'm going to put my trust in them. And even though they have no track record whatsoever, and, and maybe there's a little more enthusiasm and optimism than reality. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't worry me as an individual because I can just weed through that stuff. I get sent deals every day and I can just clearly see, you know, this is, I'm sure this is someone's first deal or second deal and I'm just not going to take part in that. But yeah, it is a concern. I think since, so I made that shift in 2015. I think since 2015, there's been a huge surge in what you're talking about. Way more multifamily conferences all of a sudden, way more boot camps coming out of the woodwork and way more people getting involved on the active side specifically. And something to look out for, I'm, I'm not saying never do a deal with someone that's new. That's not really my message, but be cautious because if they're doing their first deal and we might be going into a recession or a downturn, that could look a lot different than when I made my mistakes and we were in an up market and we were able to at least exit the deals at a profit because the market lifted the value regardless of what the team contributed. So, What do you think are some of the common mistakes that new syndicators would make? I think just like human beings in any instance, it's not knowing, you don't know what you don't know. And so, you know, you have high hopes to do this deal. And then three months later, eight of the units burn. I've never dealt with an insurance claim before. What do I do? You know, or now we're down on occupancy and and we can't pay our distributions. What do we do? Or, you know, we forgot to, you know, set aside some money in a CapEx budget now we have to pull people's distributions for six months and that's going to suck or, you know, so anything could come up. There's all these what if scenarios all day long, but I think mostly it's just going to be a curveball. And, and sometimes it's a legal issue. I was on a deal with a group that they had partnered with somebody who ended up turning around and then trying to sue them. So it was like a partnership issue. And I mean, no one's prepped to deal with all this stuff, but the longer you've been around, the more exposure you've had. And if you can grab someone on your team that's got, you know, a track record, even if you don't, I think that can go a long way to help guide you down the bumpy path that it's probably going to be. Right. So what tips do you have for new investors who want to get into the syndication space? Start with yourself. Start with looking inward and realizing, do I want to be active? Do I want to be passive? If I want to be passive, why do I want to be passive? And kind of mapping out more of that plan and that end goal is it. You know, try not to set a goal like I did, like 10,000 a month cash flow, because there's not enough substance to that. That doesn't mean anything, right? It's like someone saying, I want a million dollars. I want to win the lottery. But why? You know, you need to find your why. You really need to find what it is you're pursuing and what your passion is. And so write all this stuff down. I mean, literally, this could take as short as, you know, a week of your life. And it could really make an impact long term if you're following that advice and not just aimlessly doing things like I did. And then, you know, finding this stuff out later and going, wow, I could have cut that learning curve by five years had I just sat down and been organized from the get go. So look in- inward. And like I said, I mean, if all you have is five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars, maybe passive investing isn't the right thing right now, but maybe it could be down the road once you kind of get some more capital and focus on your income first, I guess. Mm-hmm. And as a passive investor, I don't know if this is a right question to ask, but like, is it annoying that they cash out in about five or seven years? Because some people who invest in real estate love that you can just own the building. And then in 30 years, it's paid off, it's free and clear, and it's just generating cash flow for the rest of your life. 
Yeah, different philosophies. So there's definitely syndication groups out there that do that so-called infinite return, which is like, you know, we're going to buy it, we're going to add value, we're going to refinance it over and over and over again, we're going to return all your capital over time. And then we're just going to hold it theoretically forever. I've invested with groups that do that model. I think a lot of older folks maybe don't like that model as much just because it's, you know, if you're moving up there 70s or 80s or whatever, and then it's like, hey, we might hold this property for 40 years, you know, that may not be as appealing. I think a lot of people like velocity of capital, meaning that, you know, in a five-year business plan, it's not a guarantee, but a, a pretty sure thing that in five years, you've made some money, you've got your capital back. Now you can kind of reevaluate. What do you want to do now? Do you want to put all that capital into two deals? Do you want to go into self-storage with it? Do you want to put half of it in the stock market? Do you want to use half of it to you know, pay for your kid's college? I mean, it gives you more flexibility and more options because it's a little shorter term than saying, we're going to tie your capital up indefinitely and we'll see what happens in 20 years. That makes sense. You know, one thing that I never ask anyone is demographics. Who are the type of people who generally invest passively in these multifamily syndications? Yeah, it's a lot of working professionals, to my surprise. I thought that when I left the single family world to go into multifamily, I thought, oh, I'm graduating to the next level. I'm going to be around all these like high level you know, experts in this field. But it's totally not that at all. It's actually quite the opposite. A lot of people that invest in syndications are like doctors, dentists, lawyers, attorneys, business owners. It's basically, to put it simply, a high income earner that's wanting to park capital passively because they're busy on their career. Maybe they're an athlete or something, right? They're not going to give up their career and their focus to go do real estate and go learn that from scratch. They just want a return on their money. I think a lot of people resonate with the idea of passive income. We could all use it for one reason or another. So yeah, that's most people, you know, I don't know, age-wise, 35 to 65 working professionals looking for a return on their money that's maybe more stable and less volatile and outside the stock market or uncorrelated to the public markets. Yeah, that's one thing that surprised me the most when I went to the best ever conference last year in Colorado. I was like, wow, there's a lot of lawyers, doctors, and dentists here. That's probably the bulk, yeah. And the quality of the questions is also like really, really good too. I was so surprised. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's coming up in Keystone next month. So that'll be fun. All right, Travis, are there any last tips that you'd like to give to our listeners before we end our show today? I always kind of end with, a, like I already kind of alluded to, it's really look inward, look at yourself, write down your goals, figure out what it is you want. Just as, as a real simple example, my wife and I love to travel. We love international travel. We love domestic travel. She works for an airline, so we fly a lot anyway. You know, to us, we didn't want to be tied down locally with managing tenants and with doing all the active stuff. And I got to know myself in that process. And I found out that, you know, quite frankly, I wasn't very good at what I was doing in the single family realm, right? There's people fixing, flipping homes, making more than me, doing it faster than me. They were more handy than me. They have more connections than me. And I thought, well, then what am I doing? You know, <laughs> I mean, who am I in this space? And so I ended up just joining teams that could do things, you know, on a broader scale better than I could and kind of piggybacking off of their success. And to me, that was a better model. But, you know, I had to get to, you know, look inward, look in the mirror and, and give that a hard look to figure that out. So I recommend people do that as my last bit of advice. Nice. And how can people get in contact with you? 
Email is probably best. You can find me, Travis, at ashcroftcapital.com, ashcroftcapital.com in general. And also, I've got a uh, passive investor guide. If anyone, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about as far as betting deals, betting sponsors, betting markets, you know, terminology, I've got a passive investor packet that you can download absolutely free, ashcroftcapital.com forward slash passive investor. And yeah, that'd be a great way to reach out. I'd love to connect. I help people on all different levels, not just with syndication stuff, but every day I've got one or two calls with someone looking to house hack or do their first flip or just buy their first home. And I love having those conversations. It's nice to give back in that type of way, kind of when you've been there and done that, you can add some value. So definitely don't hesitate to reach out. Perfect. All right, Travis, it was a pleasure having you on the show. All right. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Passive investment is easier and requires no work. You get less than if you did the whole deal yourself, but that differential is worth it because you're basically paying someone else to deal with the drama and the headaches of running the operation. Before you start investing, you need to look at the team first, then the market, and then the deal. Do your due diligence and be careful with who you invest with. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.